Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. And we continue our study this morning of what I've entitled Conflict in the Temple. This is um, the final showdown between Jesus and his enemies on anything remotely approaching even terms. Um, In Luke chapter 20 and 21, Jesus is holding court in the temple during the Passion Week. This is Luke's account of what Jesus did for that week in Jerusalem. Beyond this, starting in chapter 22, we get Jesus' final night with the disciples, the Last Supper's institution, and then by the end of 22, he's handed over to the mock trial. And there are six conflicts that take place in the temple. You'll remember the temple is the center of Israel's worship. The temple is where the Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt after Solomon's prayer over the temple. It left after um, Ezekiel prophesied of it, leaving before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. This is the center of their worship. And Jesus has been battling with the religious leaders, the scribes, the lawyers, the priests. They've sent in spies. They've tried to interrogate him. He's launched volleys at them. And last week, as he took on the Sadducees, the the group most closely associated with the priesthood, and as far as we can tell, the group that actually controlled the temple, he not only answered them, but he silenced them. And we read this shocking statement in verse 40. They no longer dared ask him any question. There's a knockout after the fourth round. There's still two more. Jesus is not done. And so this morning, we'll look at Conflict in the Temple, Part 5, David's Son, David's Lord. It's short. It's only a few verses. In it, we will see Jesus challenge his audience about who the Messiah is. And again, just like we did last week, we will see Jesus' confidence and reasoning tightly from small portions of Scripture, hanging the weight of entire arguments on individual words. And so... We get great confidence in the Word of God as we watch the incarnate Word of God use the Word of God to defeat his foes. So let's read Luke 20, 39 to 44, a word of prayer, and we'll dive in. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? O Lord God, as we look long and hard at the glories of your son, the Messiah, the son of David, and as we Watch him defeat his foes. Handle your word. Give us eyes to see that we might behold his glory. Give us faith that we might believe. Give us a confidence to your word that we might cling tight to it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. As you can see, I attached the last two verses from last week onto this week's. I think it sets up the text. You'll remember the first conflict was initiated in the beginning of chapter 20 with the, the groups shift a little bit, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they want to know by what authority Jesus does his miracles. And he counters with a question, uh, John's baptism, from heaven or from man? And they, they are cowards. They cop out and say, we don't know. He says, well, I'm not going to answer you either. And then he launches 
an attack at them with the parable of the vineyard opener and his son who is murdered. And they understand. Look at verse 19. The scribes, the chief priests, sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So Jesus gives a parable to the people, but the point of the parable to the people is against the chief priests and the scribes. So their, their next strategy, round three, is they send in spies pretending to be sincere, trying to trap Jesus. They're hoping that if they can get Jesus to speak against Caesar, to speak against Rome, Rome will do for them what they've been unable to do on their own, and they'll take out Jesus. So they ask him about paying taxes, and Jesus stuns them, showing them that they're already participating in Caesar's sphere. They've got his money that's got his image engraved on it. They're stunned. They marvel, we're told, at his answer. Look at, look at verse 26. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. It's not just that Jesus gets through and escapes. He triumphs. So the Sadducees come in. And this is the more secular, liberal sect that they control the temple. They don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in afterlife. They don't believe in angels. And they come in and they try to trap him with an with a absurd question. But a woman married to seven brothers in the resurrection, who's she married to? She asks, she asks crazy, shows there's no resurrection. And Jesus deals with that. And then we saw Jesus teach the resurrection from Exodus 3. From the simple fact that 400 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God speaking to Moses through the burning bush says, I am, not I was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Stunning. And, and we saw Jesus' confidence in the accuracy of Scripture, that, that he builds his entire argument on the resurrection on the tense of a single verb. And not only does Jesus treat the Bible this way, but implicitly even his opponents do as well because they don't cry foul when he does this. They don't say, well, Jesus, you're being a little, you kind of sound like an inerrantist. Don't you know, Jesus, that's a post-enlightenment construct. It's just the, the general gist of the text. No, they, they're silenced, awestruck, marvel at what he says. Jesus and all of his contemporaries recognize the scripture is this authoritative, this accurate. We will see that again today. And the end result of this, after the scribes and the priests have tried twice, and then the Sadducees come in, is Jesus four, his opponents zero, they are silenced. So you almost wonder, why not stop here? He's won. It's a clear victory. And yet Jesus, will see in the rest of chapter 20 and 21, first has a question for the scribes, condemnation for the scribes, and then the counterexample in chapter 20, verses 1 through 4 of the, of, of the widow and her, and her coin. He's going after the scribes. I mean, just look at where he goes for next week. Verse 45, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. Then he points in contrast to a widow giving all that she has. So why, why two more rounds? Why not just leave it? You've, you've won, Jesus. They're silenced. They have nothing to say. Because Jesus, as you remember, is teaching the people. And he's trying to unmask the religious hypocrisy of their leaders. The people, in very short order, are going to have to make a choice. Is Jesus the one who speaks for God, 
who reforms Israel's true religion? Is Jesus the prophet like Moses that has been raised up? Is Jesus the Lamb of God? Is he the one who brings in the new covenant? Or are their religious leaders right that he's leading Israel astray, that he's a false Messiah? They, they need to make that decision. And so Jesus is, is not done simply with silencing his enemies. He wants to unmask them. He wants to obliterate them. And so this week, we're going to see him challenge their use of Scripture. Next week, he's going to challenge their ethics, condemn their motives. But first, he wants to demonstrate that he is the true interpreter of Scripture, and that Israel's scribes, these are the ones who said, we will interpret Scripture. We study it. We're the, we give the meaning of the text that they have failed. That, that's what's being settled this morning. In this few verses, who is it who is rightly understanding the text? So let's begin, point one, with an incomplete victory. An incomplete victory. And what I mean is basically what I've just been saying. Jesus has won. Four rounds. Jesus, 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 Jesus. They're done. They don't dare talk to him. And as much as he's been victorious so far, it is incomplete. He wants to accomplish more. He doesn't simply want to win the argument He doesn't simply want to be recognized as an authoritative teacher. He wants more than that. He wants to unmask their wickedness. And as we'll see, he wants to challenge them about who they think he is. So we have an incomplete victory. Now, Luke has made this clear. Jesus has now, throughout the course of the gospel, fully answered all of their questions. And the questioning of Jesus began as early as Luke 5 by the scribes. You remember the the man was lowered through the roof. And when when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question your hearts? Which is easier, to say Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So the scribes have been challenging and questioning Jesus from Luke 5 onward. And Jesus, in the public, in the temple, in front of an audience, has now taken everything they've got and demolished them. And the entirety of Israel's would-be religious leaders, their wise men, their principal scholars, the people who study the Torah and the text, not only are silent, they're afraid to talk to Jesus. Because every time they interact with him, he, he's elevated and shown to be great and powerful, and they be, feel foolish and hypocritical. And so he's won, but it's incomplete. He's answered their questions. Jesus has completely silenced them. Point C... He's even amazingly won a measure of praise. I mean, think about that. These guys want to kill him. Look back at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. These people wanted to lynch Jesus. When your enemies who want to put you to death praise you, you've done well. But that's exactly what we see. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered, teacher. You have spoken well. I mean, Jesus did, with one citation from Exodus, what they had been unable to do up to that point. Refute the Sadducees. Prove conclusively from the books of Moses there is a resurrection. And the Sadducees can't help but say, 
Well done. Well done. Which I think then is part of why now we move on to point two, the challenging question. The crowd might now think that Jesus and the scribes are allied. They're on the same team. Them against the Sadducees. The scribes have just praised Jesus publicly. Jesus doesn't want their endorsement. He doesn't want their praise. He doesn't want to be identified with them. He's about to castigate them, rebuke them. And now, after correcting the theology of the Sadducees, they were wrong on the resurrection, Jesus is now going to demonstrate he's going to correct the theology of the scribes. They're wrong on the Messiah. That's, that's what's going on here. So we get a challenging question. And the grammar of verse 41 is Open to interpretation. Look, look, see what I mean. He said to them, how can they say? And the question is, who's the them and who's the they? Um, and I'm going to suggest to you that I think the best answer is this. Jesus speaks to the people about the scribes. Jesus speaks, speaks, speaks to the people about the scribes. So in that case, he said to them, the people, how can they, the scribes, say the Christ is David's son? Now, the reason I think he's doing that is he's already done exactly this tactic before. If you look at verse 9, he began to tell the people this parable. So who's he telling the people? Who's he telling the parable to? The people. And yet in verse 19, even though he tells the parable to the people, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So Jesus told a parable to the people that was against the scribes and the chief priests. I think that's exactly what he's doing here. He said to them, the people, how can they say? Because the they is the group that Jesus is challenging. There's a them that say something. And Jesus wants to interrogate what they say and demonstrate that what they say is insufficient. How can they say? And the scribes are the people who just spoke. And if you look at verse 45, it's exactly where Jesus is going. In the hearing of all the people, he said, beware the scribes. So I'm assuming now we're, we're challenging the scribes. It's possible not just the scribes, but all of the religious leaders. But I think the most natural reading would be the scribes. And so even though I can't be overly dogmatic, I think the best reading here is Jesus speaks to the people this rhetorical question about the scribes. So the people are the them in verse 41, and the scribes are the they. He said to them, how can they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Okay, so Jesus speaks to the people about the scribes, and what we learn then is that the scribes, the they in this group, say the Messiah is only David's son. Why do I say that? Well, because Luke has already made it abundantly clear that Jesus is absolutely, the Messiah is absolutely David's son. Just, just listen to Luke um, one twenty-seven. Luke goes out of his way to make it clear Jesus' lineage. Um, but Joseph was betrothed to a virgin. Uh, a vir- Sorry. A virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. But more explicitly, when the angel appeared to announce the birth of Jesus, Luke 1, 32 to 35, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So absolutely, is Jesus son of David? Is David his father? Is that a biblical way of speaking about Jesus? Absolutely. 
So the angel says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob and over his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Jesus can't be challenging the notion fundamentally that the Messiah is David's son. I think to make sense of this question, and it's kind of an enigma and a riddle, it's short. What he's saying, I think, is how can they thus say he's only David's son? They, they think too little of him. The scribes say the Messiah is only David's son. Now, keep your, keep your finger here. Go with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7. And we're going we're to do some um, Old Testament Messiah prophecy studies this morning to understand what Jesus is saying, the challenge he is giving. But in 2 Samuel 7 is where we find the covenant that God made with David about a descendant, about a seed who would be his son. Now, you remember David has, has offered to build a house, a temple for God. And even though it pleases God that this is in David's heart, the Lord says, no, you're not going to make me a house, but I'm going to make a house for you. And that play on words that works in English of house being a building and house being a dynasty um, works both in Hebrew and in English. So 2 Samuel 7, pick it up in the middle of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. That's important. There's genetic continuity between David and this offspring. And I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. So in the first instance, I believe, the Lord is referring to Solomon, David's son, who indeed builds God a house, the temple. And Solomon goes astray, and he sins, and he marries many wives, but God does not abandon or forsake him. God brings him back. And we see the book of Ecclesiastes written by a very old and repentant Solomon. But David is promised that his line will not end, that his kingdom will not end. And so God is promising to stay with his descendants who will be a son to him. And so this is the basis of the Davidic covenant. And, and so it was understood, in fact, if you now turn to Psalm 2, that this individual is, in fact, the Messiah, Psalm 2 unites those themes, that the coming Davidic king is also the Messiah, the anointed, the Christ, is also God's son. Psalm 2 really ties these themes together. Let's read all of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed there's that word for Christ or Messiah, anointed. Anointed is English, Christ is Greek, and Messiah is Hebrew for the same thing. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he's referred to in verse 2 as the anointed or the Messiah. In verse 6, he's referred to as the king. And then citing the language of the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. There's the connection with 2 Samuel 7. And here's where the notion of sonship is brought in. This person is the Lord's anointed, is the Lord's king, is the Lord's son. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of your earth a possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. So the scribes understood there was going to become a Davidite, son of David, a king who would be the Messiah, and he'd be great, and he would have a great kingdom, and the geopolitical powers of the day would do well to befriend him and honor him. But even with all that, he's not as great as David. David wrote most of the Psalms. David was Israel's first great king after the stutter of Saul. David was a man after God's own heart. And, and by their logic, the child is always lesser than the parent. So they, they could view the Messiah as great. And we know the expectation was that they drive the Romans away. The kingdom of God would come. They're thinking Psalm 2 is going to happen. And in some sense, surely, the king of Israel enthroned represents as a representative of God on earth. You could say he's, he's God's son in a sense. Sure. But that's all they thought. They had too low a view. Point one, they had too low a view of the Messiah. Consequently, they had too low a view of Jesus. Even as some of these scribes are impressed with Jesus' answers, and perhaps they're even reconsidering, maybe he is the Messiah, who they think that is and what they think that means is far too low. I turn now to, uh, to, back to Luke 22, actually. It's this Christological question, the identity of Jesus and his Messiahship and what that means. This is what catapults him to the cross in point of fact. Luke 22, pick it up in verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's a reference to Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand. As well as, I think, an oblique reference to Daniel. So then they said, are you the Son of God then? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. As Jesus becomes clearer and clearer about what he means when he claims to be the Christ, what he means when he claims to be the Son of God, as they begin to understand, that's it. That is the issue that they announce. Okay, we're done. Kill him. Oh, sure, they hated his um, casting light on their sin and their hypocrisy, but ultimately, it's claims over who the Christ is, who Jesus is, disputes over his identity and greatness that ultimately is the catalyst to the cross. 
And so Jesus here is challenging this. And part of this, I think we get the reason for why he continues the battle even after he's won. It is imperative for them, it is imperative for the people to understand just who it is he is claiming to be. It is not enough that they view him as a good teacher. Teacher, you've spoken well. Oh, this is a great teacher. That's true. It's not true enough. So they, have, they say he's only David's son. They have too low a view of the Messiah. They have too low a view of Jesus. So now we get that Jesus argues for the Messiah's superiority from Psalm 110. Now we're going to go back to Psalm 110. Keep your finger here. But I want you to notice the simplicity of Jesus' argument. How can they say that Christ is, I think, only David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, which is the citation of Psalm 110, verse 1. David this calls him Lord, how is he his son? So if you go back to Psalm 110, I will try to work through, I think, the logic of Jesus' argument. And just like we saw last week, it is tight. It is grammatical, okay? So let me give you the the argument in in big picture form, and then we'll go through it piece by piece. Basically, he cites a messianic psalm where David refers to somebody else who's distinct from the Lord God as his Lord, and Jesus wants to know, if the Messiah is David's son, what's David doing calling him Lord if he's only his son? Reevaluate who you think I am, in other words. So here's Jesus' argument. And then the first part is, is really, I think, interesting. I hadn't noticed that till this week. But point one, Jesus' argument assumes David is the author of Psalm 110. Jesus' argument simply does not work unless we accept the psalm title. Now, the psalm titles exist in all of the earliest Hebrew manuscripts we have. We have no early Hebrew manuscripts without psalm titles, yet it's very common for people to think they're added later. But Jesus' entire argument doesn't work unless the information contained in the psalm title is accurate. Because it matters that it's David saying this. If you thought, or if somebody thought, no, it's not David, this was written long after David, this is some scribe, the entire argument falls apart. It has to be David. Notice Jesus emphatically making that point. How can, for David himself says in the book of the Psalms. So again, how accurate is the Bible? Jesus is going to build his argument based upon the information contained in the psalm title. By the way, next time you're reading the book of Psalms, you read a psalm, don't skip over the psalm title. It's part of the text. Um, Maybe your Bibles have a further title, like my ESV, sit at my right hand. That's man's words. You can ignore that. But a psalm of David, that's scripture. And it's critical to Jesus' argument. David is the author of Psalm 110. That's the first plank in the argument. Second, in verse 1, David recounts a conversation between the Lord, and your Bible probably has there for the first occurrence of Lord, all caps. And when your Bible has the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, it's the translator's way of indicating they're translating the divine name. What we guess at is Yahweh, or sometimes called the Tetragrammaton. This is the divine special covenant name of God revealed by God at the burning bush. I am who I am. It, 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 there's, it's always, only, and ever God speaking. So the second point here, the Lord God, that's the first Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, and 
The ESV, the second Lord, is not all caps. It's the Hebrew Adonai, which is a powerful person, sometimes even ascribed to God. In, in Genesis 15, 8, Abraham says, O Lord God, O Adonai Elohim, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So it's, it's a great high title, but we also see in the Old Testament it can be ascribed to other people. It's not the name that only has one reference, Lord, all caps, only references God. Adonai is a great, powerful Lord or person, can be used to speak of God, can be speaking of other things. And so David overhears or speaks about a conversation where God, the Lord God, speaks to David's Lord. Okay? And so it's critical. You've got David is the one reporting this. What that means then is David can't be the one referred to in the second instance as Lord. That's why Davidic authorship is critical. If you have this be a scribe or some priest, then the, 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 sat, the scribes could say Jesus. It's just referencing God speaking to King David, who, of course, the scribe would refer to as my Lord. You know, my Lord, King David. It only works if David's the one writing this. Because then that excludes David from possibly being the one referred to as my Lord. David has to be in this mix. There's David, there's the Lord God, there's this third party who David calls his Lord. Okay? The Lord God speaks to David's Lord. And the next point in the argument is this. David's Lord is his descendant, the Messiah. We saw in Psalm 2 how the Davidic king is also identified as the Messiah. And make no mistake, this person in Psalm 110 is this future Davidic king. How do we know that? What's the Lord telling him to do? To sit at his right hand, a position of power and authority and rule, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord God is saying to this third party, the Messiah, David's Lord, sit here, this position of highest honor and authority, and wait till I crush your enemies, in other words. That's what's being said. So David's Lord, then, is his descendant, the Messiah. Because remember the Davidic covenant. I know, I know we're meshing together a text, but it's, this is what Jesus is doing. Explicitly, from your body. The Messiah has to come from David's body, this king. And this Messiah who will come from David's body, who is his descendant, is so great that he has the right hand seat next to the Lord God as he waits for the Lord to make his enemies his footstool. Thus, Jesus reasons, the Messiah is therefore greater than David. That's the point Jesus is trying to make. He isn't only David's son. He is greater than David. And the reason why I make that point is, in Hebrews chapter 7, we see, you don't need to turn there, but we see in Hebrews 7, the implicit understanding that the descendant is always lesser than the parent, even if the descendant does great things or greater things. In an argument about the superiority of Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews points out that Abraham himself gave offerings to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham in response. And he says, it's always the case that the greater blesses the lesser. And since Levi was in Abraham, so to speak, Levi gave gifts to Melchizedek. And the logic there is this. Whoever Levi is, he's lesser than Abraham. The argument only works if you assume that Abraham's descendants are lesser than Abraham. And so to prove that Melchizedek's greater than Levi, his priesthood's greater than the Levitic priesthood, we see that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and 
Abraham gave gifts and tributes to Melchizedek, and therefore, since Abraham's greater than Levi, Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, Melchizedek's greater than Levi. Okay, so that's the, that's the Jewish assumption. And Jesus is challenging that and putting it on his head based on Psalm 110. His entire argument is built on one verse. He is challenging their entire understanding of the Messiah with one verse of the Bible. A Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let me notice one other thing from this Psalm of Jesus' argument. Not only is the Messiah therefore greater than David, when David writes this, the Messiah, his genetic descendant, already exists. It's not the Lord will say to my Lord. And we do have future tense events in this psalm. Verse 3, the people will offer themselves. No, the Lord says, even as David exists, the Messiah also pre-exists David. In other words, this one who is so great, he gets to sit at the Lord's right hand, who is David's fleshly descendant, he's human, can still be spoken of and spoken to prior to him becoming man. Now, we don't quite have our way to deity yet, but man, we are scratching really close because we've got an individual who is so great, he sits at God's right hand. He's going to rule the world. His enemies are made his footstool. He's David's son, and yet he is preexistent. Before he is conceived and birthed, God is talking to him, and he's awaiting things. Now, I don't think this absolutely gets to deity, but it gets really, really close. And Jesus is saying, you've got to raise your understanding of who the Messiah is, you're thinking far too low of him and therefore far too low of me even as you consider who I am. And at the same time, he's showing the people, these scribes, these self-appointed leaders and interpreters of Scripture have got it all wrong. <laughs> Our Lord masters his enemies. One verse of one psalm, your entire understanding of who the Messiah is, Jesus says, is wrong. Go back to Luke 20 again. So that's, that's the flow of the argument. I just want you to see how it fits in the text now. So the scribes give him a praise. Teacher, you've spoken well. He doesn't want their praise. He wants to unmask their corruption. He's going to do that. He's going to show the people, first, their understanding of Scripture is wrong, and their hearts and their motives are wrong. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. They neither understand God's word rightly, nor do they live it. He said to them, how can they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. King David, in other words, recognizes this one of whom he speaks is so great that even though he's received the Davidic covenant, even though he is the greatest living man in Israel of his day, this other third party is his Lord. That's what Jesus is teaching and challenging. Um, so what's the conclusion? Quickly, Jesus rebukes the scribes' mishandling of Scripture. Jesus rebukes the scribes' mishandling of Scripture. We've seen him last week correct the Sadducees' errors of interpreting the Bible. He wants to show Israel that all their leaders are mishandling the text. They're not, they're not dealing with it properly. 
He is the prophet like Moses to whom they must listen. It is he who gives the true meaning of God's word and his truth. He is the right interpreter of scripture. But secondly, and probably the most significant point is this. Jesus has just made an audacious claim. Because remember, Jesus has claimed to be this son of David. He came into Jerusalem being heralded. Remember remember the, the, the blind man? Son of David, have mercy on me. He's received that title. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees say, rebuke your disciples. He says, no way. So Jesus has taken this title upon himself. Therefore, Jesus is saying, I am this one who David called Lord. I am this one to whom the Lord says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Make no mistake, Jesus has just made an audacious claim to greatness and authority. And this is precisely the claim that when it is fully understood by his enemies, they'll just kill him. What further need do we have to talk to him? Kill him. He's, he's blaspheming. So why, why does Jesus press that point? Because he demands from the crowd, he demands from the scribes, and he demands from you and from me that we recognize his lordship, that we, like David, say, that is my Lord. That is my Lord. The one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, that is my Lord. It's not enough to think Jesus is a good teacher. You know, C.S. Lewis made this point very well. Jesus didn't leave us the option to say he's a good teacher. Good teachers don't make claims like this. Good teachers don't say, I'll be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Good teachers don't receive worship from people. Now, Jesus is either lying, he's fake, he's a lunatic, he's, he's insane, or he is Lord. He did not leave any other option for us. Lord, liar, or lunatic. And here, he raises the understanding of who he is. This is just in keeping with everything he said to his disciples and the crowds on the road. Remember, he says, you've got to love me more than you love anyone else. You've got to value me more than you value anything else. You've got to renounce all your possessions to come after me, to be worthy of me. He's doing the same thing. He's raising their understanding of who he is. Jesus is, in essence, saying, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And we, too, have to wrestle with that question. Will we worship him and hail him as Lord? Or will we cast him aside for our own desires? It is critical that the people in the temple understand this. It's critical that we understand this, that we herald him as Lord, and I trust we do. So I just want to, as I call the worship team up for a closing song, show you the glories of the Son of God who defeats his enemies, who masterfully handles Scripture, and the, the immense trust that Jesus puts in the text and little points of grammar, making his argument from the psalm title, and his demand that we receive him as who he is or not at all. Please stand as we begin to sing.